they were caught on the 82nd day of hell. The shadowy skyline of the Tarmalan sector had been within sight and their grueling journey almost at an end. They'd been readying themselves for the final trek to whatever safety-friendly ground could provide, but a soul patrol had caught them in the open, and that had been the end of it. They hadn't hoped for much. Like water, hope was in short supply in the devastation that had been the greatest city in the galaxy. The Lazic's body, tall, humanoid with its four long arms and two long legs, didn't require a particularly high level of daily sustenance. A few pieces of fruit or a bite of a high-protein wafer could nourish a Lazic's for a day, and was easy to carry besides. Water was a different story. Traveling through the ruined city had been an exhausting and thirsty business, and the four friends were far from young. Water is life, was one of the 15 miscue truths taught to them as children. Ironically, it was water that would be the death of them. The water that flowed in the city distribution network had been unsafe to drink. Too many of its pipes had been compromised, touched by chemical leaks or raw sewage where the souls bombing, uncaring of city services, had destroyed civilian infrastructure. They'd learned this lesson the hard way on the 17th day, when they'd all gotten violently sick from drinking city water. Gil, Dano, and Peor had recovered a few days later, but Eamon had died from dysentery on the 20th day. And then there were three. After Eamon's death, they'd been forced to forage for safe liquid as they traveled, in derelict shops, in coolers of abandoned sieve-habs, in automatic dispensers overlooked by looters. They'd even tried to cool steam from boiling city water, but were unable to capture sufficient amounts of liquid. The best source of safe water was the wellheads, the civic facilities that pumped groundwater from the granite bowels of Rex to Mechatol's trillion citizens. So close to the source, the water was yet untouched by the corrupting influence of war. In his old life, the life he'd lived before Soul Dreadnoughts had unleashed hell on his world, Gil Sai Dinish had been a Lazix counselor at the Civita Planetar. After they'd buried Eamon under a cairn of ceramic rubble, Gil had located a working data console. Here he'd used the privileges of his past life to acquire the location of every wellhead in the zones surrounding the Imperial Palace. Such was it that their journey to the Tarmalan Sector had taken them from wellhead to wellhead, an indirect path from one life-giving island to another in a sea of death. At the time of Emperor Salai Saikorion, the great city of Mechatol had stretched almost 4,000 miles east to west and only slightly less from north to south. It had been an endless jungle of mile-high structures, elevated walkways, platforms, and sparkling towers covering the surface in a near-unbroken carpet of permacore and plasticon. Yet as impressive as Mechatol had seemed from the air, the subsidy that lay beneath its surface had been almost as developed as the city above. Where possible, the three friends had traveled through the subsurface sectors and thoroughfares. The journey had taken them from cavernous halls, some hot and sooty from topside fires, along wide tunnels lit only by fading emergency sconces, and through smoldering craters where the bombing had penetrated so deep as to expose the levels below. At times, the topside fires had burned so hot they'd been forced to descend into long abandoned sublevels. For a stretch of days, they'd even been forced as far down as the upper chambers of the Old Deep. In that pitch-black darkness, they'd felt their way through the ancient warrens of causeways and habitats bored below Mechatol a millennia ago. It had been a dangerous course. In many regions of the Old Deep, the air was poisonous, and a wrong turn could find the unwary traveler lost in some subterranean wilderness like the catacombs of the primals, the starless desert, or worse. Closer to topside, they'd frequently come across great atriums filled with refugees, 
mostly mistrustful and hungry people who had fled the topside from the dubious safety of the subcity. The refugees had pieced together ragged shelters from whatever materials they could scavenge, forming large, shadowy shantytown. Once, the three travelers had come across a long chamber which housed a village of the dead. Gil guessed the topside ventilation ports had been blocked by rubble, and after a few days, the refugees' cooking fires had poisoned the air, asphyxiating the hall's inhabitants. The smell had been ghastly. Above ground, even greater dangers lurked. In their region of the city, soul patrols were to be most feared, but a thousand things could get one killed in the new Mechatol. Gangs of looters that would kill first and steal later, packs of flying Ruvar birds that, driven mad by the poisoned rains and desperate for food, had become feral and savage things. And there was the endless soul bombings. While the explosions could kill one well enough, they left behind a broken landscape almost as deadly. In those death zones, at the slightest touch of wind, deadly debris would fall from the burnt husks of structures above. At times, entire elevated civ block platforms would disappear underfoot, collapsing into the urban depths below, weakened girders giving way with rusty pops. Even the weather had turned deadly, especially the devilish storms of glass dust that followed the worst bombardments. And there was the war. Many of the great races were now fighting each other in the city, like crows squabbling over the choice morsels of a carcass. On the 82nd day, the three had filled their bottles at the last wellhead. It was the seventh wellhead of their journey, and they'd thought themselves quite adept at the process by then. Perhaps they'd gone complacent, perhaps the wellhead had been used by the sold troops at the Tarmalan sector, or maybe they'd just gotten unlucky. Whatever the cause, they'd filled their bottles and had been leaving the facility when a soul patrol had spotted them. Two soul craft, hovering above, had trained their lights on the three old Lazics, blinding them. Dano had acted instinctively. Of navy make and fiber, he was the strongest and certainly the bravest of the three. As soon as the lights had washed onto their position, he'd thrown down his load and leapt back into the darkness. It hadn't done any good. With an angry roar, the dual slug spitters of the Soulcraft had torn apart the shadows. Dano with them. And then there were two. Gil and Peor had raised their hands in submission, and their precious bottles had dropped. Water had spilled onto the street, and what little hope they'd had left spilled with it. The beginning of their journey had started many cycles before hell came to Rex, before the water had turned sour and the sky had burned. The four had been childhood friends, each of them a promising son of Lazic's nobility. They'd been taught at the finest schools, eaten the finest foods, and grown to maturity in the finest quarters of Mechatol. Each of the four had come from families so ancient and wealthy that entire buildings on their estates had been dedicated to family histories and heirlooms. Undoubtedly, the four friends were among the most privileged in the galaxy. Their race was that of the emperors, the Lazics, the eternal rulers of the stars, and their future as bright as the sun. As they came of age, the four friends had separated by careers. The duties of the Empire were legion, and Lazic's nobility of their stature expected to serve the glory of the Emperor wherever needed. Peor Sanwalai became a powerful ambassador to one of the Lenoton collectives. Dano Iafilin advanced far in the Imperial Navy, and in time came to command his own wing of cruisers in the 502nd Fleet. Eamon Guzaxos advanced to the role of section commander in the Mechatol Planetary Defense Force before following his father's comfortable footsteps as a senior stakeholder in one of the eight Kenatar, the Lazic's industrial conglomerates whose holdings and industry stretched across the stars. 
Of the four childhood friends, only Gil Sidenish stayed on Rex through his whole career, first serving as junior administrator in the Corps, and later as an emissary of the Emperor to the Civita Planetar. As all things in the universe, the four grew older. When they'd entered that uncomfortable age which lies past the peak of one's career yet before retirement, three of them had received calls to serve the Emperor's administration on Rex. Dano was offered a role as tactical advisor to an admiral serving on the Emperor's Council of War, Eamon was to become elderman in the Emperor's Industrial Committee, and Peor took the position of senior attendant to one of the thirteen Miraton, the Emperor's personal ambassadors to the Galactic Council. Gil had remained an emissary to the Civita Planetar. His lifelong career on Mechatol had made him a well-connected individual, with comrades in hundreds of bureaucracies and favors owed in many more. The other three suspected, with good reason, that it was Gil's subtle machinations that had brought them back together on Rex in the twilight of their years. As they'd taken their new positions on Rex, they'd enjoyed their reunited camaraderie, their lofty positions at the Imperial Palace, and their roles as the senior patriarch of their family estates. Then had come Eamon's clandestine meeting in the Clid Gardens. After Gil and Peor surrendered in the courtyard of that seventh wellhead station, they were cuffed and taken on board one of the Soul Flyers. As they'd flown their dying city passing underneath them, their legs had ached in remembrance of painful leagues walked and now quickly erased in the jet wash of the flyer. Their destination was one of the elevated warehabs near the Salab slums, a monstrous construct recently converted to a soul penitentiary. Spindly guard towers had been raised along the outer edges of the complex, and a squadron of soul airborne gunships patrolled its perimeter like angry insects. When their craft approached, a gunship escorted them to one of the many freight piers that extended from the construct. As they approached for landing, Gil glimpsed a soul landing zone to the south. There, a massive freighter was preparing to dock while columns of soul troops and military supplies were streaming from the gaping load port of another. Gil swore the freighters displayed the Hakan, not soul insignia. Then they were stripped, submerged in some foul-tasting chemical cleaning agent, dressed in grey prison robes, and each supplied with a fiber wool blanket of some unidentifiable dark color. Four guards then took them roughly in arm and brought them to their cell. The cell was really more of a hall, a great metal-walled room filled to near capacity by hundreds of occupants, mostly Lazic's civilians. As Gil and Peor were shoved into the cell, few inmates seemed to notice. Of those that did, none seemed to care. Their new home had no beds, no bunks, no furniture at all to speak of. Other than the dull metal walls and the permacore floor, the only notable feature was the ceramic sheds that allowed inhabitants to relieve themselves in privacy. The shed's bio-waste containers were emptied only every four rotations, and the stench slowly accumulated to one that made Gil gag. Then the containers were emptied, and the cycle of accumulating stench repeated itself all over again. Food was served twice a day, each food ration accompanied by a small container filled with tasteless water. While the bland food sufficed, the amount of liquid was nowhere near enough to properly sustain a Lazic's body. After a few weeks of incarceration, inmates slowly became dehydrated, their eyes and cheeks sinking, their tongues swelling. They'd meet during the hour of the second moonset, the humdrum of merrymaking a muffled drone in the background. On the eve of every tenth rotation, the Emperor would host a festive gathering for the Empire's Persona Vitalis. Senior staff, the greater nobility, the highest ranking of the ambassadors to the Galactic Council would mingle casually across the entirety of the palace grounds. It was no coincidence that Eamon had planned their meeting for such a night. 
With the socializing, the secret dealings, and the copious layers of intrigue bred in the palace on such occasions, few would pause to wonder why four senior statesmen with far-flung responsibilities would congregate in one of the many palace gardens for idle conversation. This particular night had been a cool one. Moisture had gathered on the colorful flowers and the sharp leaves of the clid trees from which the garden took its name. They'd found Eamon standing by the balustrade on the eastern side. He had been visibly uncomfortable. Far below, down and beyond the palace walls, the River Doris moved incessantly south, a liquid slab of black marble, its inky blackness intercut by frequent whitecaps and the gusts of spray against midstream outcroppings. From the Clid Gardens, if one looked up from the Doris, the vastness and lights of Mechatol would stretch as far as one could see in every direction. Dominus Island, on which the Imperial Palace was built, had once been a remote river islet, but the city had reached and bridged the Doris long ago, enveloping the palace. So great was Mechatol, the Imperial City, that its sky never darkened. Upon the setting of the gull, the ambient glow of ten trillion lights would soak the sky in a lustrous amber haze that could be seen far into space. Above the tangle of buildings scurried unending city traffic, flying vehicles of every size, each on some business or pleasure in the greatest city the galaxy had ever known. Gil had seen the view a thousand times before and hadn't given it a second thought that night. Only the great plume of smoke that rose in the far northeast had given him pause. Even after several weeks, the great hall of cartography was still burning. Ibn Valsid had set it ablaze and hightailed it to the stars, stealing one of the finest of the emperor's cruisers in the process. Valsid had been called the Doomsayer, or the Fearmonger, by his peers. Now he was referred to simply as the Traitor. And the once proud name of Valsid was spat upon and mentioned only with righteous scorn. When they'd all arrived, Eamon had turned to greet them pleasantly. Then he had taken a deep breath and said in a firm whisper, Belsid may have been right. Diplomats and counselors both, Gil and Peor, had reacted to Eamon's words with expressionless caution. While they'd glanced at each other with calm, they did not feel. Dano had responded more forcefully. Are you mad? He'd hissed between his teeth. Dano was a military man. He'd been outraged at the loss of a cruiser to Velsid's cowardly flight not to mention the great loss of life at the Hall of Cartography. Only the bonds of a lifelong friendship had kept Dano from storming off during those first minutes. Yet by the time Eamon had made his case, even the old rear admiral stood pale and taut in disbelief. Eamon, with his connections to both imperial administration and private industry, had come across a disturbing sequence of information, facts that, when followed, had led the old Lazix businessman to a dark conclusion. He told them how Mechatol's Hylar free unions perhaps were not as free from university influence as thought. When the Jolnar headmasters had abdicated from the Empire some 70 years ago, the Lazics had begun to appreciate how addicted the Empire was to Hylar expertise. The great majority of data nets, robotics, and even propulsion technologies had emerged from the watery laboratories of the Hylar and had been maintained under lucrative service arrangements with university unions. After the universities of Jolnar had resigned from the Galactic Council, many Hylar unions from expatriate enclaves had declared themselves loyal to the Emperor in return for amnesty and rich contracts. While those free unions were under careful observation during the first few decades of the conflict, in time they'd become an accepted and moderately trusted part of the Empire. Why, in the last six cycles, have free union populations in Mechatol dwindled by almost half, Eamon had asked, showing the immigration statistics illustrating how curious numbers of Hylar women and children had left Mechatol. Not in droves, 
but in a steady trickle, not in numbers that would raise suspicion except viewed over time. Who maintains our defense systems, Eamon had asked rhetorically, glancing at the still angry Dano. It was common knowledge that maintenance of the most military emplacements for centuries had been a joint effort between the Lazax military and free union contractors. Gil had cleared his throat and spoken. That morning he'd returned from the Adminus Mechatol, where the three largest free unions had declared a strike. During the past year, free union leaders had been seeking expansion of their charter, their demands aggressive, almost obstinate. As if engineered to force a strike, he'd muttered. Eamon had nodded knowingly and continued. He'd shown them how the administration of both the Hakan and Nor Embassy quarters had been reduced to skeleton crews. Why are they leaving Mechatol? He'd asked as more of a statement than a question. What do they know that we do not? Dano had become visibly nervous when Eamon suggested the decade-long state of hostility between the Sol and Jolnar rebels had been clever theater to create a pretense of conflict. If they are near all-out war, why have Sol warships been docking at Jolnar shipyards? Eamon had shown them supply manifests and classified subcontractor work orders from his industry connections. Peor had interrupted gently, calmly, concluding that a conspiracy of such scale would have been impossible to keep secret from the Empire. Why, Eamon had countered, can our eyes see when we do not look? Can our ears hear when we do not listen? Eamon had waved his arm in the direction of the distant smoke plume. Only Vel Cid dared to question Lazic's hegemony. He was met with mockery and dismissal. Was he the one-eyed man in the land of the blind? There were other facts and figures, subtle snippets of information one could easily dismiss as trivial, but when seen together, formed a mosaic of troubling visage. Storm clouds were gathering at all sides of the Empire, and few seemed to have noticed. My friends, Eamon had taken them by their shoulders and whispered emphatically, I have come to fear that our Empire is on the brink of collapse, that Rex itself may be in imminent danger. They'd stood in silence after that. Sounds of careless laughter, superficial conversation, and the clinking of expensive glass had continued unabated from the corridors, halls, and garden terraces around them. After some time, Dano had said quietly, I cannot believe it. It's inconceivable. Eamon had nodded sadly. Then he turned to Dano and asked, Where is the Mechatol fleet? Dano's eyes had dropped, a flicker of trepidation passing over his features as the last wall of his disbelief crumbled. Navy movements were confidential, and Dano couldn't betray his posts by answering the question, but his reaction was all the answer they needed. The Mechatol fleet was nowhere near Mechatol. Here's another one. Gil was jarred from the memories by one of the shock prods the soul guards used to control and corral the prisoners. Cuters, they called them. One of the guards had a particular dislike for the elder statesman and seemed to take perverse pleasure in counting the blue-yellow welts he'd so amply provided on Gil's arms. Gil had come to think of the man as Scar for the deep fissure that crossed the man's left brow and had left him with a blind, milky eye. Here's another one, he'd growl in an accented univoca, followed by a painful kiss of the cuter, a cruel grin splitting his ugly primate face, white eye shiny with glee. Except for the daily inspection and Scar's pointless punishment, the stale days of imprisonment simply passed from one into the next. No news came from the outside world, and the mood of the inmates did nothing if not deteriorate. Some wept, many slept, a few talked in low voices, but most just passed the days in silence with blank, dehydrated stares. 
On rare occasions, nearby bombardments were felt rather than heard, the faint tremors their only reminder that the universe was alive and hurting around them. After more than a fortnight, despite Gil's misgivings, Peor decided to raise a complaint about the water rationing and its deleterious effects. A few concerned prisoners reminded Peor that it was generally considered a poor idea to speak to guards or detention staff. Not only was dialogue rarely returned, but the presumptuous speaker would often receive a healthy cuter poke or two. Worse, anyone in near proximity would likely be cuted as object lessons. Gil reminded Peor that on the day they'd arrived, a woman had asked the guards to be moved to the hall where her children were kept. They're afraid of the dark, she had pleaded, and they need their mother. The guards had answered with their simian laughter and then cuted her so badly she'd lost her mind. Afterward, the poor woman would just sit facing the wall, hugging her knees and whispering repeatedly, they're afraid of the dark, they're afraid of the dark. Peor would hear none of it and insisted on trying to improve their lot. Two of the elder Lazaks, whom Gil didn't know, decided to join Peor in his request. The three stood together near the double entry door, waiting for the staff to enter for their scheduled emptying of bio-waste containers. We request to discuss the water situation with your officer, Peor said when the staff finally arrived, laden with suction equipment. The two other elders had nodded solemnly in solidarity. As expected, the accompanying guards cuted them, so they were sobbing on their knees. After the guards thought the three obstinate Lazics to be sufficiently cowed, they waved for the sanitation staff to proceed. But Peor slowly returned to his feet and said calmly, I think you misunderstood me. We need to discuss the water situation with your officer. Peor's defiance surprised the guards and prisoners both. It surprised even Gil. As the guards moved to cuter Peor again, many prisoners rose in disapproval, hands closing into fists. Reading the sudden change in situation, the senior guard called for his comrades to hold back. Then, he recalled the sanitation staff, and together, they left the hall in quick step. The waste containers remained full, and the stench was at an all-time high. But even so, Gil noticed a few rare smiles. A few hours later, the sour-faced corporal who'd admitted them entered with a large contingent of guards. He'd glanced impatiently at the prisoners, and then called Loudy. Who wants to discuss the water situation with me? Still shaking from the earlier punishment, Peor and the two other elders rose slowly and approached the human. When they finally stood, towering before him, he looked them up and down with contempt. Then, without warning, he drew his service pistol and shot each of the three of them in the head. The hall erupted in a clamor, inmates cowering from the unexpected shots, screaming in fear, pleading for mercy. Peor, who in life had been so graceful, collapsed to the floor with a fleshy slap. Then they were one. After the guards pulled the bodies out of the hall, the corporal, pistol still smoking in hand, gave the quailing prisoners a hateful look of warning. Then he spun on his heels and marched out without another word. After their meeting in the Clid Gardens, his three friends had come to share Eamon's concerns. Regretfully, they'd not known what to do with the knowledge. Ibn Vel Sid had been a lone voice in the wilderness, He'd warned the Emperor, he'd warned the Inner Circle, and he'd warned the Council of Military Commanders. He'd urged the need to change, and he'd advocated for both prudence and action. In turn, a charismatic and forceful individual, Velsid, had attempted to change the course of the Empire, and he'd failed. Then, he'd burned every trace of his plans and destination, and abandoned his race to rot in their complacence. Despite their high birth, the four friends could not hope to match the access or power that Phil Sid had enjoyed. 
He'd been their senior by far, a personal friend and counselor to the Emperor, and still none had listened. In leaving as he did, El Cid had sown such enmity within the inner circle and the military command to his ideas that presenting the information Eamon had gathered would surely fall on deaf ears. The four had lamented for weeks on their course of action. They'd sent their closest family members off-planet for relaxation, but were at a loss as to how to convince their superiors of a looming danger of a nature they couldn't directly identify. Dano had advocated they simply run the risk of being declared anathema and forcefully present their findings to anyone that would listen. The three others had found such strategy too risky for their careers. Instead, they'd fretted and weighed their options, waiting for some moment of opportunity, perhaps some outside event that would support their concerns and give them a window for action. When that event did occur, it had been entirely too late. About a month after Peor's death, the prisoners were woken in the night. The heavy doors slammed open and a dozen guards burst into the hall, shouting loudly for the inmates to rise. Anyone too slow or too sleepy got a taste of the old cuter. Then the prisoners were paraded out of the hall through a maze of metal corridors, down staircases, and finally into a brightly lit atrium where other groups of Lazak's inmates were being assembled. All were dressed in the same dirty gray robes, eyes glazed from sleep and fear. Though the bright atrium was many times larger than the incarceration hall from which they'd come, it was filling rapidly as prisoners by the hundreds kept arriving in a steady stream. After what Gil assumed was the last prisoner group had joined them, they were herded into long lines and their feet shackled. When the jailers had completed the shackling, two great metal doors on the far side of the hall were opened. With cuter prodding and assaulting of shouts, the guards soon had the lines moving through the doors and a long march began. In the hours of walking that followed, they crossed hall after enormous hall, corridor after long corridor. After some time, Gil was sure they'd left the prison complex, but the guards gave no evidence of their destination. They passed through halls untouched by war, while others were nothing more than blackened shells. On occasion, they crossed into the open, where a taste of sulfur on the wind and smoke columns on the horizon reminded them war was still raging in the city. Then they'd invariably enter another civ block structure, which meant more halls and more dilapidated corridors. In the end, Gil lost count. After nearly a day of marching, they arrived at a wide set of stairs. After a short rest, more for the benefit of the guards than the prisoners, upward they went under the intermittent glow of faint light sconces. Upward, as a thousand footsteps echoed in the staircase shaft, thumping and scraping like the slow shuffle of some alien monster. Up, up, up towards some high destination. Gil shuffled forward and upward, the magnetized shackles at his feet humming and his thighs burning with every step. The long miles of walking to the Tarmalan sector had given him a wiry strength he'd never possessed in his old life. Even so, the endless climb was hell on his legs. Every few minutes, Gil would hear the sudden slap of a pistol, sometimes ahead, sometimes behind. He'd invariably pass the results of those ahead, corpses that had crudely been kicked aside to give way to the climbing column of prisoners. Up, up, and up. Gil's world narrowed until it consisted of three things only. The next step, the burning in his legs, and his memories. One early evening, a soul fleet had struck Rex from deep space without warning. Equipped with new mass drives developed by the Jolnar, the Soul Navy had taken the Lazak's high command by complete surprise. As a result of free union strikes and other sabotage, great portions of Mechatol's planetary defense systems were offline at the time of attack, including those of the Imperial Palace. 
only a few sectors managed to form proper shielding and defense. In the Imperial Palace, chaos had ensued. Palace staff, soldiers, and bureaucrats had run in every direction. Others had frozen where they stood, gaping at the impossible events unfolding around them. Servant automatons had scurried this way and that, sensors overloaded by the tumult and conflicting commands. In case of some disaster, the four friends had planned to use Gil's shuttle to return to their home district. Unfortunately, their plans hadn't included a noble that, desperate to escape the palace, had crashed his craft into a docked luxury barge and converted the landing platform holding Gil's shuttle into a fiery wreck. Instead, they'd been forced to take a Droma lift down to the island's surface, and there managed to secure space on one of the few Broadhole water ferries that supplied the Imperial Palace by way of the Doris River. As the ferry had pushed off against the pier, hundreds had already been swarming on the docks, all desperate for a place on one of the few departing ferries. Gil had seen several people fall into the rapid waters, shoved heedlessly off the pier by throbbing crowds. They'd been about a third of the way across the river when the first bomb had struck the island and the resulting shockwave had hit with unforgiving force. A group of passengers, three servants and a noblewoman, had been flung into the water as the swell from the explosion violently shifted the ferry's prow to the left, forcing the boat parallel to a rising wave. As the wall of water grew, the boat had begun to tilt dramatically sideways with the rising wave. Those passengers, who managed to cling to something, a railing, a vent, or some solid piece of machinery, avoided certain death in the angry river. The rest plunged into the water like rotten fruit from a shaken tree. Peor had nearly fallen, just as he had been about to slide screaming over the side Dano had managed to grab him. For a minute, Peor had hung in midair, clinging to Dano's hands as the angle of the boat continued to tilt. For a few dreadful seconds, the boat had loomed near capsizing. Then the boat had cleared the wave, and the deck had violently risen to rejoin them. As the boat slid down the back of the first wave, the captain had corrected the ferry's angle to meet the second wave head-on. The resulting spray had taken another few passengers with it, but the boat had held. A few wet and grueling minutes later, the ferry had managed to finally cross the Doris. It inelegantly scraped against the Permacore River barrier, much further downstream than its accustomed landing. The remaining passengers, using an old line of steel rungs bolted to the barrier, had clambered off the ferry onto a mostly abandoned riverside roadway. The captain had climbed with them, abandoning the ferry to its own fate. Upstream, the palace was burning. The great dome of the emperor had been cracked like an egg, and fire and smoke blazed from the large fissure. Smaller conflagrations raged across the entirety of the island, and walls were crumbling where mortar finally gave way. Gil had seen the Clid Gardens in flame before they disappeared in a cloud of debris as their entire wing of the palace crumbled into dust. The sky had been thick with sole military craft. Cruisers and frigates had moved slowly across the horizon while flights of fighters roared angrily across the sky. Far above in the evenfall light, great gray shapes of dreadnoughts and carriers could be gleaned, their huge engines emitting pallid blue glows in the darkening atmosphere. Panicked civilian traffic had skirted across the skies, abandoning normal traffic routes as Sol warships indiscriminately fired at all non-Sol vessels. The skies had been ablaze with burning transporters, freighters, personal flyers, and all manner of non-military vessels, all plummeting like orange rain toward the surface, tracing faint lines of smoke in their dying wake. The downpour of doomed vessels impacted buildings, antennas, landing platforms, or the planetary surface itself where blooms of fire and dull booms had seemed to emanate from everywhere at once. A few planetary defense systems had come online. 
Far to the north, in the direction of the Tarmalan sector, Gil had seen a huge soul cruiser repeatedly hit by plasma tracers from PDS emplacements. Burning and breaking, the great cruiser began to tilt sideways and lose altitude. Like a falling citadel, they saw it plunge to its death, the distance and size of the craft making it look as if it were in slow motion. After the careening ship had descended below view, a blinding flash and then a torrent of black smoke had emerged from its faraway grave. Around them, the population of Mechatol had been in disarray. Gil had seen families hauling possessions into private flyers, only to be shot down as they emerged into the traffic routes above. Many individuals had been running, others looting, some just stood and stared at the skies. Some were wounded, a few of those being attended, but many that couldn't walk had been left to bleed. Then a swarm of soul landing craft had emerged from one of the carriers idling far above. Like heavy beetles, the craft descended on the Emperor's smoking island and no defenses had stopped them. By that time, the disparate group of fairy survivors had begun to scatter. Short of options and little wish to encounter the soul forces that were landing on the Dominus, the four friends had begun to walk. Their destination at first had been the Ahain nobility sector, the home of their ancestral estates. While it had been considered suitably close to the Imperial Palace, the Ahain was still more than 200 miles from Dominus Island. By air, that would have been a short jaunt. By foot, through a war zone, they guessed it would take four old men nothing less than 12 rotations to cover. They'd walked during lulls in the bombardments or when the attention of the soul forces had seemed at a sufficiently safe distance. Sometimes on the horizon, they'd seen the encouraging glow of shields and the plasma tracers of PDS emplacements. As the days passed, civilian airborne traffic had all but disappeared, and only the constant to and fro of Seoul military vessels had been seen in the skies. The bombardments had continued unabated. Even for a fleet as vast as the one Seoul had sent to Rex, the Imperial City of Mechatol was much, much greater yet. The four had slept where they could. During the first few days, the local citizenry had been surprisingly friendly, as if the attack had brought the city together. Private citizens and shop owners had freely opened doors and larders to the displaced citizens that walked the city. But this camaraderie, unfortunately, did not last. As the soul bombardment continued and little to nothing was seen of either Imperial forces or planetary administrators, anarchy had begun to take firm root. What had been kindness and generosity was replaced by mistrust and hoarding. As the days wore on, a gray despair had begun to set in the dying city like gangrene and dying flesh. On the ninth day of their walk, the four friends had found hospitality from a shop owner who'd kindly agreed to take them in for the night. She'd given them bowls of canned soup and a small bowl of paste flakes. The four had eaten greedily, particularly appreciating the reinvigorating salty broth. A few other dislocated souls had been resting at the back of the shop. Gil had struck up idle conversation with the dislocated family and learned with dismay that they'd come from the Ahane sector. They described how the ancient district had first been targeted by several soul bombardments and later by hordes of looters. Those estates that weren't in ruins or burning had been looted or occupied by the many citizen posses that were forming across the city. A wounded PD guardsman had been in the shop also. When he hadn't been coughing blood or drinking from a bottle of snot of liquor, he told them of how Lazic's forces had managed to organize themselves in a few sectors, that military frequencies were broadcasting summons to guardsmen, police, or any loyal Imperial citizen willing to help repel the cowardly assault. The core and the fastness were two of such locations, and so were the Tarmalan, Arbaxis, Beck, and Sai Salai sectors. The guardsmen had sworn that forward Lazix naval forces were trying to break the blockade, and that some Lazix reinforcements had even managed to land in the Beck sector. 
of the fate of the emperor or the central administration, he could say nothing. The four friends had hoped to join the guardsman in the morning to go wherever he was going, but the soldier had died of his wounds during the night. Of those sectors the dead guardsman had mentioned, only the Tarmalan was within reasonable distance of their current location. On foot it would be a journey that would take months, but it was what little hope they had. And so on the tenth day, the four had begun their long journey to the Tarmalan sector. The endless climb upward continued for several hours, and Gil was nearing the end of his strength. His legs were shaking so violently that he needed to prop himself against the corridor walls. Even the guards seemed too tired to care. What waits at the top of the stairs, he wondered. An another prison? Gil didn't think so. He expected they were being moved to some high platform for transportation. The higher the platform, the larger the shuttle. At last, the climb was over. They came to a landing and stopped. The temptation to throw himself onto the floor in exhaustion was almost unbearable, but the guards would have none of it. Any prisoner that tried to sit or collapsed got treated with cuters until they stood again or died where they lay. More prisoners kept arriving from behind, sobbing, shaking from exertion, and the wide landing soon became crammed and hot. After more waiting, the guards finally opened a set of heavy plastic on doors and took the first batch of prisoners through. As the doors closed again, Gil felt a taste of cool air. He imagined he heard the whine of engines as well. They'll move us off-world, he guessed. In his youth, he'd heard rumors of the infamous prisons on Jord's moon. A senior member of the administration won't be sent to a work farm, he'd hoped. Surely Lazic's forces across the galaxy would regroup to punish the humans for this brazen attack. When that happened, a hostage like Gil would be valuable as sole negotiated terms of peace. When the doors opened, Gil was pushed forward with the next group. Pressed into a second corridor, the guards shoved them forward with renewed urgency. The air was cool and breezy. Curiously, Gil didn't hear the expected drone of engines from an awaiting craft. Instead, he could hear only the crackling of cuters and the howling of outside winds. Then Gil passed Scar, and the guards stopped him with a shove. It was the first time that Gil hadn't seen Scar smiling. Instead, there was a different, colder look on the guard's face. His white eyes shone, not with glee, but with some grim finality. Scar pressed something into Gil's hand, a wallet of some kind. Then someone from behind pushed Gil down the line, and he never saw Scar again. The sound of cuters discharging increased in intensity to a non-stop crackle, their ozone smell filling the air. Gil glanced at the small wallet the guard had given him. It wasn't a wallet, but some form of light picto frame. Gil flipped the cover aside. Inside was a picture of a small human girl. Then he finally understood. There was no shuttle waiting for him. As the corridor turned, Gil entered a windblown room awash in broken furniture and rubble strewn across a mildewed industrial carpet. Abandoned Ruvar nests clung to the molding where the walls met the ceiling. The most prominent feature of the room was an enormous hole that had been torn into the side of the building. The steel girdles and permacore walls were twisted and bent like grass in the wake of a great beast. Gil guessed the building had been grazed by one of the many craft that had been shot out of the sky. Kernels of shattered plastic on glass covered the floor like sand, crunching beneath his feet as he was shoved toward the opening. Through it, Gil could see a gray sky and his city, skeletal and inanimate, stretching beyond sight. A frigid wind was blowing, howling through the scarred building like a broken-hearted animal. The sound of the wind almost covered the screams of the falling. 
Like the sole cruiser he'd seen fall, Gil's last seconds seemed to happen in slow motion. A breathless clutch of fear gripped him, and the beating of his two hearts drummed on his throat like hammers. The picto frame of the dead human girl dropped to the floor. With cuters red hot and smoking, with kicks of heavy boots, the guards pushed the line forward, forward through the hole and beyond their custody. Gil saw those before him forced to the edge, their gray robes catching the wind for a precious second before they were pushed from sight. Sound seemed to leave the world. As the end came, Gil didn't feel the cuters as they kissed his back and thighs, prodding him forward, nor did he hear the yelling or the sound of the wind. Then he was at the edge, the wind catching his ragged robes for a fleeting moment. A mile below flowed the Doris River. He saw the faint, falling bodies of those who had walked before him. A final shove, and then there was only air and wind and the blurry rush of the building moving past him. The river will carry me downstream, Gil thought as he fell. The current would take him through his city on a last journey, past the Emperor's palace and the sunlit balcony where he had spent so many of his afternoons, past the park shores where he'd played as a child with his three friends. Then at last, out of the city, and out of history. In the end, the waters of the Doris rose to take him, and then there were none.